Our next guest is a human rights lawyer, a politician with BC's NDP government, and Parliamentary Secretary for the Environment, MLA Amin Singh. He has a profound personal story about alcohol addiction and recovery. He's also currently recovering from colon cancer. And since stepping into politics, he's been an open book about his health, advocating to reduce the stigma of mental health and addictions, and providing an example to others that there is hope. I'm your host, Dan Murphy, and you're listening to the Don't Change Much podcast. All right, Amin, I'm going to start with this. Uh, just how are you feeling right now? Because we know you were diagnosed with, with cancer in uh, 2021. And from reading, I think you're done your chemo. So where are you in your recovery right now from, from colon? Yeah, no, it was, it was I'm done. I'm cancer free. Uh, having been through it a few times myself and having been through it through this last round, uh, one month of radiation, about eight months of uh, chemo and two operations, the level of care. So it's not only the, but not only financially, like the level of care that I got and the human interaction. And yeah, I just, I have nothing but amazing things to say about our healthcare system. And is, is this something you'll have to follow up with, uh, you know, in the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a, a screening. I had my last colonoscopy just about a, a two weeks ago, actually. Uh, so it was like every six months, and now I don't have to have one for three years. I just had a CT scan a few months, uh, a few weeks ago as well. And again, uh, they were doing it every three months, and then six months, and now it won't be for another year. So yeah, they'll 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 still monitor because you know. Once you've had cancer, there's always the danger of it coming back. So they will uh, they will always monitor at this point from this point forward. But uh, as far as they can tell for now, it's clear. We'll circle back around to a couple more questions about uh, cancer and family history, etc. Uh, but uh, let's talk about what you call the the biggest battle of your life, bigger more so than a battling cancer. And that's alcoholism. Uh, 13 years sober, is that what we are to gather now? Yeah, 13 years in about a week, actually. August 10th, 2010, I was was my day of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's outstanding. Let's go back to well before that. When did you begin drinking? Um, and was it just a social thing to start? Uh, were there other factors? I didn't have to drink every day uh, in the past. I, I, I drank socially uh, at parties. I, if I look back on it now, it was a binge drinking once in a while, once every few months, uh, you know, where it really went <coughs> beyond what was beyond what was healthy. And then, you know, you woke up the next day and we're like, oh, God, I'm never drinking again. So nothing dramatic, which is what's really kind of scary about alcoholism, right? It's uh, uh, I often say it's a disease by attrition. Right, it's slow. It's deadly. It creeps up on you, or it can creep up on you, uh, and that's what happened with me. And then you know you have you have challenges in life, right? We all have those challenges, and if you're in a good space, if you're in a good mental space, and you have the support around you, um, you know you don't have to uh, delve into the depths of addiction. But sometimes you don't, and that's just by chance. And that's where I think I found myself. I had uh, some personal issues that were happening that were you know that were really not that unusual but alcohol provided that you know safety that ease and comfort um that when you don't want to deal with your feelings when you want to deal with you know conflict when you don't want to deal with other things you just it's it's really easy to escape so that was sort of the beginning of it and if i trace back uh 2003 2004 i started drinking a little bit more 
um, you know, uh, I'd often use the word to take the edge off at the end of the day, right? But being a lawyer, I was a lawyer for a long time, so being a lawyer is quite stressful as well, and it just... The drink really did take the edge off and sort of uh, uh, let you let things go. This is hindsight looking back on it. There was a part of me that was not at ease with myself, not at ease with my with my uh, uh, surroundings. You know, I was at dis-ease with myself. Um, and alcohol was a great crutch. Like, it really worked. It helped me get out of myself. It helped me at that point. And that's really the sort of insidious thing about alcohol is that it really does, for people, For it really does help, right? Uh, or it looks like it's helping. But it's also a depressant. So if you're already slightly depressed, it'll depress you more. And from that, it, it just went on. Uh, and by 2006, 2006, I was drinking fairly regularly, not just at parties, but, you know, at home every day. And by just slowly over time, attrition, it really did creep up on me. And by 2007, I was drinking every day. I mean, when you got to this point in 2007, were you having an internal dialogue with yourself? Did you know that things were past what they were in the past? Did you know that something would come to a head? Or were you just deceiving yourself and, and uh, masking it from yourself as you were from everybody else? No, no. I mean, there's always that part of you that knows that this is not normal to be drinking like this. There's always that part of you. But... Addiction and alcoholism are, are diseases of the mind, right? So they're, they're, even though you're, you, you, you know that this is, not, this is not normal, physically and mentally tied to it, right? You're addicted to it. And so you're, you have to drink, right? And it was just that, you know, and without help, you can't get out of that hamster circle without, without cycle, without, your, without any help. And I always knew, right, that this was an issue. It was an issue in the marriage. Other people were telling me it was an issue, right? And I knew it was an issue. I mean, consciously, I knew that I wasn't drinking at work. I knew I was white-knuckling it. And I knew I had to run to the liquor store right afterwards, uh, right before I got home. I, I mean, that's, that's just not normal. And a really big part of me knew all of that, but didn't really care because I just needed it, right? Yeah. There, was a, there was a mental part of me that needed it. And without having the right help and getting through, like doing the things that I needed to do to get that help, it, it wasn't, there was no point. Right. I was drinking against my will. My will did not want me to drink. I was drinking against my will, um, even at that stage. Yeah. And, and you had a, you had a major health scare then in, in 2008. And even that was not quite enough to, to get you to, to seek the help you needed. No, no. So I was drinking. I mean, I was drinking quite a bit. Right. And then uh, I woke up one day, uh, middle of January of 2008. Uh, just a, again, a normal day. Nothing unusual. I hadn't drunk more or less than any other time. Um We'd gone out for dinner, I'd come home, and I woke up around midnight just feeling queasy, and I started throwing up, and I was throwing up blood. Like, it wasn't vomit, it was actually blood. Uh, so I'd had what was called a, 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 a esophageal tear, a tear in the esophagus. I was just throwing up blood, volumes and volumes of blood, and I recognized immediately that this was not good. I kind of knew what it was because um, I'd heard about it. Um, and so we lived fairly close to the Richmond General Hospital. I called my, I woke my wife up. I'm like, let's call the ambulance or let's just go there because this is like, by the time the ambulance gets here, it might, you know, we're, we're going to get there just as fast. We got in the car, got to the, uh, uh, got to the hospital and just don't really remember much after that um, because I kept on throwing up blood. I threw up, I lost a 
significant amount of blood. Um, I was in the ICU for a few days. And a couple of days later, when I came to, with tubes hanging all over me, and I mean, they'd done all sorts of interventions on me during that time period. Um, I came to a few, yeah, I came to a morning like three or four days later, I think. Uh, and uh, uh, the doctor had just the uh, doctor had just uh, written something on the on the little board clipboard at the end of the table uh, bed. And this is really early in the morning. Doctor Martin Fishman, phenomenal doctor, phenomenal surgeon, gastroenterologist. Um, and he 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 left, and I, I I mean I literally had probably a dozen wire like tubes sticking out of me. I sort of shuffled to the end of the bed, grabbed the the uh, clipboard, and said, you know, alcoholic cirrhosis. So I had given myself cirrhosis by drinking. And again, uh, no symptoms, really, no health symptoms beforehand. Being nauseated and things like that from the alcohol, really nothing else, no jaundiced eyes or nothing like that. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was quite a significant health scare. And uh, doctors, a group of doctors came and said to me, "You you cannot drink. You you will not. You might die. You will die if you drink again. You can't drink again." And were you thinking about your next drink at that time? No, I was. You know, that's again. It's a it's a really really cunning, baffling, powerful disease because, you know, when you're not in it. Your mind's logical, right? You're like, oh, God, I can't, you know, I can never, like, God, I, why would I drink again? This is insane. It would be insane to drink again, right? Um, and that was what was going through my mind. So I was, I think I was in the hospital for maybe a week or so. And once I left, no intention of drinking whatsoever, right? But I think less than a week had passed being out of the hospital where I was like, eh, you know what? Maybe the I should get another diagnosis. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about. And how could like I wasn't drinking that much, right? I you know cirrhosis is quite serious, right? I wasn't drinking that much. Must be something else. And you know now I know that like I can't drink a whole bottle by myself. Now I know that. Why don't I? I'll just have a beer here, or, or I'll just have one drink. And really, that's how it started. That's how cunning it is. That's how it started. It, it, it just you know I'll just have one drink. Just you know. I had a long, hard day at work, and I think I deserve a drink. I used a 12-step system. I used Alcoholics Anonymous to recover, and, you know, there's all these sayings, and one of the sayings is uh, one drink is too much and a thousand drinks aren't enough, and that really is true. You know, once you start, once I had that first drink, the craving, the phenomena of craving stuck in, and I was off to the races again. And so that was January 2008, and for the listeners out there, I didn't get sober till August of 2010. I had points of sobriety in between, but, you know, I still drank. And between January and, and April, I had two more GI bleeds, two more times in the hospital. Um, April of 2008, when I was in the hospital, I wasn't really a, wasn't a, a traumatic GI bleed. It was a smaller one, um, and they were going to let me go, and I begged them not to let me go. I said I need to I need to get in somewhere, and the reason I did that is while I was in the recovery room, um, a nurse came up to me and held my hand and you know stroked my hand and and said to me, "It's it, it, look, it's not your fault. This is not this is this is not this is not a moral or ethical failing on your part. You have a mental disease, and you can't recover from that mental disease by yourself. You need help." Right? And the first thing you need is you need to get away from alcohol. And for that, you need to go away somewhere for a month or two. 
where you know the, the, like your body isn't craving that anymore and then you need you need a cognitive behavioral help that's required to help you overcome this mental disease uh, we don't have any drugs to treat it yet we don't have any medicine to treat it yet so the only way to treat it is through different forms of therapy and she gave me a whole bunch of brochures of different treatment centers and so while in hospital i reached out to the different treatment centers and uh, uh when they let me go i took my wife and we visited two of them and i chose one and i i went to the treatment center on bowen island called the orchard it's a phenomenal place i stayed there for their full six-week program i got familiar with a mental disease uh a sort of model of of alcoholism as there where i really i i understood that this wasn't because you know until that point it was like you know why are you so stupid? Why do you keep drinking? This is insane. What's wrong with you? Like, what is, what are you lacking internally, Amin, that you keep on doing this? You're stupid. You, you're going to die. You've been told you're going to die and you keep on drinking. What's wrong with you? Right? That was the internal dialogue I was having. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. There's a physical component of it, of getting uh, healthy, but how closely then is the mental health aspect tied to the disease? Uh, very, very closely. So there's a physical part of it because, you know, you're a day or two out, you still have those physical cravings. Um, but they're also mental as well. And the mental, like, they're intimately tied. You can't break one from the other, right? You can stop drinking for a few days. But if you haven't dealt with the, the mental side of it, you'll be back out there again. That was really important. And, 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 and the shame and the guilt that you feel, uh, uh, that really is, you know, that's part of alcohol's armies, right? it helps keep you down. So going to a place where you're, where it's explained to you that this really is, this is like diabetes or like cancer. It's a disease that has to be managed, right? More like diabetes mm -hmm. than anything else. It's a disease that has to be managed. It really is a disease of the mind. If you don't deal with the mental, uh, like uh, the mental part of the disease, if you don't deal with the, what in Alcoholics Anonymous we call the wreckage of your past, um, don't look at yourself, you'll, you're gonna go back, right back to drinking at some point or other. And you see that also in my story as well. You know, I uh, uh, traumatic GI bleed and I'm in the hospital and I come out of the hospital thinking, okay, you know, it's been a week or 10 days, whatever. I've been in the hospital. I've been pumped full of vitamins. I'm not physically dependent on alcohol anymore. By that time, it's out of my system. Whatever craving, physical craving I have had for it was out of my system. But within a week, my because I hadn't dealt with the mental side of it, I was back to drinking again. And these are all the things that I learned in treatment, right? That really the biggest block is the, the guilt and the shame. That leads to the effect that people don't ask for help because they feel shameful about it, right? They feel, they feel embarrassed about it. By the time I got into treatment, I knew what the problem was. A solution was given to me. I was given the tools that said, this is not, you don't need to have a, a guilt or shame about it. You may feel that. It's not a moral or ethical failing on your part. This is a mental disease. Feeling guilty or shameful about it would be like for a diabetic to feel guilty or shameful about be having diabetes, which some pe some people do as well. There is that stigma as well. By the time I thought I got out of the treatment center, I thought I had the solution. 
that I was I wasn't going to be drinking anymore. That uh, uh, I had been far enough away from it. And why would I drink again? And now I know it's not my fault. It's you know I had a mental disease and I'm dealing with it. But I didn't actually do any of the work. So that was my story over the next two years almost of in and out, right? Uh, getting into dire situations and then realizing I had to go back in. So uh, going back to treatment again twice after that and uh, going to lots and lots of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, right? Uh, fairly regularly, sometimes going to them drunk, sometimes drinking afterwards, um, because just going to meetings is not enough. You actually have to do the work. Just showing up and, I mean, it's, it probably kept me alive, right? And it, you know, it definitely kept me alive. I was in and out for almost two years and, you know, uh, what finally happened I think it was just, you know, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick and tired of waking up and looking in the mirror and not recognizing, you know, the loving little boy who had amazing parents and amazing brother and amazing community that loved him. I, I didn't recognize that person anymore. Everybody had left. And, you know, my parents tried really hard. My brother tried really hard. My friends tried really hard. Um, but in the end, it just, you, you push everybody away. You know, during those last few months, I remember, like, coming to, because you're not waking up or sleeping, you're coming, you're blacking out and coming to. I remember coming to after having drunk who knows how much, and my dad being my bedside with a little spoon with lemon juice in it, trying to just get it into my mouth to keep me hydrated, right? That's the sort of care, and, and that's the sort of, you know, fear he had, right? But towards the end, everybody was gone. Um, I was home alone. Um, wife, ex-wife had left, of course, by that time. My neighbor came over, found me passed out on the bathroom floor. He called an ambulance. Uh, ambulance came and I flatlined in the ambulance. I was out. They brought me back to, they did whatever medical intervention they needed to do to keep me safe and alive. I came to a couple of hours later and that craving was still there, right? I needed, I needed alcohol, that craving was still there. I told the, the hospital staff that I, I'm, I'm leaving, um, I needed to go. I, I can't be in the hospital anymore, and they said to me, no, you can't go, you, you, know, you basically pretty much died yesterday. You flatlined, can't let you go. And I said, no, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I know, I know my rights, you, you can, I can leave here against medical advice, go get a psychiatrist, I'm not suicidal. And uh, uh, didn't even wait for the uh, nurse to come back to take my IVs out. I took them out myself. So I'm, you know, and walked out of the hospital in a gown. I got into a taxi. This is early, early in the morning. I was able to convince a taxi driver to uh, uh, go and uh, get a Mickey of alcohol for me from the uh, liquor store. And then I would pay him uh, uh, a whole bunch of money when I got home. Uh, and he complied. He took me to the liquor store. It was still closed. We waited for about 10, 15 minutes. Open, he went in. He got he got um, two Mickeys of Smirnoff vodka. I remember this still. Two Mickeys of Smirnoff vodka for me. By this time, I'd, I'd stopped buying bigger bottles because there was part of me that wanted to stop drinking. I was like, okay, I'm just going to buy a Mickey and then maybe that'll be it. I'll stop drinking after that. That was sort of the internal dialogue that was going on. So, you know, I was always... And this is quite normal. You'll see this. I, I, thought, I thought I was unusual. But this is this is the story of many many alcoholics. Uh, they they graduate from the big bottles to the Mickey's, which is because they want to stop. 
Now, were you manipulating yourself at this point? Because you just left the hospital where they told you that you almost died. Were you thinking to yourself again internally, I'm probably going to kill myself if I keep drinking, but I can't stop? No, no. I was like, I don't like, I don't feel like I died. I have no idea. I just passed out, blackout. It's normal like every other day. My neighbor just overreacted. That was my internal dialogue. Like, why the hell am I at the hospital? Yeah. I should have just, he should have just let me home and I would have come to and I would have been okay. Yeah, so we got into the taxi back back home. Uh, I had no keys because, you know, all my clothes are gone. Broke into my own house through the uh, uh, the garage door. Uh, broke the garage door, got in, paid the taxi driver off, and took my Mickey's and, uh, you know, consumed one right away. And then kind of, like, lay on the sofa and blacked out. Yeah. So what, 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 what was ultimately the breaking point then? Because at this point, it, it doesn't sound like the road to recovery. You were, you were that far down it. And it sounds like you're right back into the the depths of it yeah always back in the in a little bit and out a little bit but i again i had i had created that fellowship in 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 that recovery community so um i i came to on my couch and i went and i grabbed uh, uh the other mickey that i had and i drank a little bit of it and then i put it away somewhere and i passed out again and i came to again and i couldn't find the rest of that alcohol and so subconsciously i like to think to this day that there was a subconscious part of my brain that knew that my death was in that last half a bottle and it just hid it away and I I, I, did, I actually didn't find that last Mickey until weeks later um, so I blacked out again and I came to uh, and a friend from Alcoholics Anonymous was there right to take care of me and really good friend of mine um, and he picked me up he took me to a meeting and then he took me to his house. What was different was I started getting invested. I started before I never put the chairs away or did anything. This time I met someone um, and he, who eventually became my sponsor. I heard him talk. I heard something something in his, in what he said struck some chord in me. And something in what he said just like made sense to me. And I went up to him and he's like, hey, come, come help me wash the dishes. And then the next week, he's like, okay, uh, you know, we've got enough people to wash the dishes. You're going to go out and, uh, can you go out and clean all the cigarette butts? And then for the next little while, that became my duty that I would, you know, uh, again, very stereotypical outside an AA meeting, everybody's smoking. And not everybody's conscientious and, you know, cigarette butts on the ground in front of a church. So that became my sort of thing. So every week I had to be there to clean up the cigarette butts. And it gave me, it gave me, uh, I was invested. It gave me some responsibility. Then I went on to cleaning the cups, putting putting chairs away, listening, starting to do the actual work of recovery with with a sponsor, with a step group, going through the steps. And you know, once I started doing all of that, next thing I knew, I had a few weeks. Next thing I knew, I had a few months. And slowly, one day at a time, not changing much, only those little steps, right? Picking up cigarette butts, cleaning some coffee cups, reading a book hanging out with people one day at a time. Next thing I know, it's years and years. And now it's 13 years. Aside from the 12 steps, what what do you do now to make sure you stay on that path? What helps you now? Is there uh, a mental component, a, med- a meditation? Is there a physical component in exercise? Is there a nutritional component? What do you do now to make sure you stay on that right path uh, physically and mentally? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the physical health and mental health are like intimately tied. I eat a lot better. I, I try and get out as I have two big dogs. So 
I'm forced to go for walks every day as it is. So that, you know, that really, really helps. I have a spirituality. I'm a Sikh. So I have that spirituality sort of part like instilled in me and I partake in that. Um, but really fellowship. I still go to meetings. Um, I still look at myself and I still, every decision that I make, I question it, right? Um, why am I doing this? Um, am I, am I hurting someone? Am I, am I, what is, what is my motivation? Um, even with my, I have a four-year-old daughter. So even with her, you know, uh, uh, parents often tend to say no for no reason. I think about it, you know, why am I saying no? Is it only because, is it because I can say no? Or is there some, is there some lesson to be learned by saying no? Is it dangerous for her? So I, I, I'm a lot more thoughtful. Most of my friends are still in recovery. So that fellowship is really, that really carries you. And every few years, I will go through the steps again and make that moral inventory. But I really try and actively live within that moment. It, it sounds like you had a great support system uh, with your, your family, your, your father, obviously, your, your mom, your brother. Uh, what about, is alcoholism, uh, you said you felt ashamed, there's a stigma. In the South Asian community, uh, is it a hush-hush subject as well? It is. It is. It is. And, and you know what? Not just even the South Asian communities. Alcoholism is quite rampant. Mental health issues are quite rampant, as they are in other, every other community. And, you know, COVID, COVID didn't help, right? It made things worse. It pushed people out. It pushed people away from each other. We're, we're social beings. And that's what, you know, that's what the Fellowship of AA provides. That's what religion provides. A lot of people recover from alcoholism and addiction through religion, right? And it's because it provides that fellowship. And then there's other, other methods out there as well. sober for almost 11 years and you get the cancer diagnosis. First off, family history with cancer, there, there's laws correct. Your father had prostate cancer, your mother... Yes, uh, father had prostate cancer, mother had breast cancer, uh, different types of cancer. But, you know, I'm pretty convinced that colon cancer and alcohol pretty related, yeah. right? With the family history, you were more inclined to get checked when, uh, you know, perhaps some others might not at that time? No, not at all. We have a phenomenal healthcare system. We are, you know, we have the ability to go and get checked. So annual checkups, right? I, I go and do my annual checkups. I have, and we also in British Columbia have a great colon cancer screening program. So when you get past the age of 50, you get sent a letter, right? Saying you need to, you should go and probably get the, start testing for, for colon cancer in your regular yearly uh, blood test. And that was it. No symptoms. Never been sick, fairly healthy, right? Lead a fairly healthy lifestyle. And uh, uh, went in for my regular test. They found traces of blood in my stool. And then they did more tests. And the next thing I know, I have, uh, after the colonoscopy, I have stage three, fairly advanced stage three cancer, uh, colorectal cancer that's spread to several nymph lymph nodes around there. And I left it up to the experts. I got my radiation, then I got my chemotherapy, and I got my two operations, and I'm absolutely cancer-free at this point. I don't know if this is a fair question, but when you're waiting for the diagnosis, the two months, you're physically down, probably you're emotionally down. Does the mind wander at all at that time back to alcohol? No, not at all. Because I've done the work, and I continue to do the work. Not at all. Not a day. My mom passed away several years, five years ago. Would have been a great time to pick up a drink, right? My father got Alzheimer's. I had to, you know, I mean, he stayed at home. We had home care, which is also phenomenal, but they can only come four or five times a day. Right? And, and in the in-between, I, you know, had to take care of him. I had to clean up his pee and his poo. 
it was sometimes it was frustrating because he's got Alzheimer's, so he doesn't he's not mentally there. He's not cooperating. Uh, sometimes it's just me alone. All really really stressful times where you know normally a drink would be a good idea, but never never even a thought. And when you had the cancer diagnosis, and this is maybe the stigma of alcoholism, were people more willing to talk to you about your cancer diagnosis than in the past willing to maybe discuss uh, alcoholism with you? No, because it was colon cancer. So it had to do with the whole, you know, your had to do with your butt. So colon cancer is quite, you know, it, it's quite stigmatized, right? Um, and then, you know, you, you ask, how do I stay sober? One of the ways I stay sober is I'm really open about my recovery, right? I Because the only reason I'm sitting here today is I saw hope at those meetings, right? Um, and someone spoke something. And again, it, it may have been really innocuous, but it struck a chord in me. And I, I, my, my ears perked up and I listened and I'm here today because of that. So I try and talk about it as much as I can, because maybe someone will hear something in me and they will reach out for that help. Right. So, uh, uh, when I realized it was the same thing, cause you know, for six, no, five months, no, not yet, less than that, uh, three or three or four months, I had a, I had an ileostomy bag, right? So I'm pooping into a bag on my stomach, uh, like the amount of stigma that's, that's, that, that there is on that is is immense so i spoke out about it as much as i could i spoke out about my bag i showed it to people yeah right even if they didn't want to see it i was like hey this is normal there's many people out there with this this is just a medical procedure this happens right we have to normalize this yeah and and it sounds like because you realized how much talking about uh you know perhaps with your aa groups talking about uh, your alcoholism helped you in your recovery that anytime you can speak to someone else normalizing uh these diseases uh, it's going to help other people down the road. Absolutely. And that really is, you know, not only does it like, not only is it just the right thing to do with colon cancer, but you know, if it helps someone else, that helps my sobriety because I helped someone else. Right. We are social animals. So when we we're, we're designed to help each other. Right. And when we help each other, I truly believe there's something in this universe that, you know, we get it. We get an extra point for that. Right. What did alcohol cost you and what have you gained with sobriety? You know, I don't even think about what alcohol cost me. All I think about is I live an incredible life at this point. Emotionally, uh, uh, family-wise, like I have, a, I have a four-year-old daughter who basically kept me alive. So when I got the cancer diagnosis, she was a year and a half. She'll be almost four now. Um, and you know, all I could think of was I can't die. I need to stay away. Uh, I need to stay alive for her. Right. I have that. I have, I already had a phenomenal career. I'm now I'm an MLA, right? What a, I, like I get to serve all of British Columbia. I'm the parliamentary secretary for the environment. The environment has been a passionate, you know, I've been an activist all my life and environmental activism has been a really, really big part of that. I've been passionate about that all my life. I get to do for work what I love to do. So I get to live a life beyond my wildest dreams. Would I go back 20 years and, and, and if I could, you know, tweak it so I wasn't, so I didn't have alcoholism? I wouldn't do that at this point because this is who I am now, right? I, I, I can't live in yesterday. I don't know what would have happened. Um, and I can't really think about tomorrow hasn't happened yet. I can concentrate on what's happening right now and take care of myself right now first, because if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of anything else around me take care of myself first and then move on to all the people I love and then on to everybody else. Right. So yeah, I, sobriety has given me, given me everything. Okay. Two, two more questions, I think. And you said that, um, 
battling alcoholism was the most difficult fight, more so than battling the cancer. Is that because the cancer, the treatment was laid out in front of you? People told you this is what has to be done. And there was no component where you were going to talk yourself out of it. Is that kind of where it came from, where alcoholism, people could tell you, you need to do this to live, but you're like, screw that. Yeah, you don't listen to people. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It's And again, no one else really matters. What matters is that internal dialogue, right? There's, there's never in that internal dialogue that you're not going to do this. Uh, chemo, you know, uh, chemo sucked, right? But it's like, there's chemo, chemo is like the worst, but it saved my life, right? Chemo sucked physically. Um, but the mental anguish that you go through, the self-hate, the self-loathing, the self-deprecation, um, just that feeling um, of dis-ease with yourself that you have in alcoholism, like that that shame and that guilt. Uh, and when I say shame and guilt, it's it, it, like it almost is not, uh, those are not strong enough words, right? It really is self, self-loathing self that you have um, when you have a mental disease and when you're drinking against your will or you're using drugs against your will. Uh, it just is, uh, uh, that's that's torture. We'll ask you the question we ask all our guests, and I think you've answered it a few times throughout the interview, but um, the podcast is Don't Change Much. So what does that phrase mean to MLA? I'm insane. I didn't change anything um, really dramatically. I lived one day, one moment at a time. I lived in the present. I changed small things, right? Instead of just sitting around, I changed to cleaning up cigarette butts outside a meeting. I changed to, to uh, cleaning up coffee cups. I changed to actually starting to look and do the work change to going for a walk for 10 15 minutes small changes in your life right how about you don't drink right now you're at this meeting let's not drink today right let's not drink right now let's do something else let's go read this you know let's go read this book let's 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 speak to other people about their experiences in the beginning i i often went to two to three meetings a day right so that was my my day was consumed with that um i'd go to work and i i i spent a lot of time at meetings um you know instead of doing that why don't i why don't i instead of drinking um, let's uh, uh, go grab a coffee with someone, right, and, and talk. And so those small changes eventually led to a couple of weeks of sobriety, then months, and now years. So, yeah, don't change much. Um, make it manageable. But, you know, slowly, one day at a time, little by little, uh, and you won't even notice. I didn't even notice the time. Little by little, uh, you look back after a couple of weeks and things will have changed dramatically. Well, we congratulate you on your, your sobriety of 13 years. Uh, bless up to the uh, cancer diagnosis, cancer-free. Uh, and we're certain that, you know, you sharing your message of your journey and what you've gone through is going to help others who are perhaps suffering uh, through the same, same things. There's help out there. All you have to do is ask. And there are so many people, so many phenomenally good people out there that are willing to help. They're not just helping you, they're helping themselves. Every time I help someone, I make my sobriety stronger, right? I make myself stronger. So you may be at a point where where you, you can't even look at yourself in the mirror and you hate yourself. Find yourself somewhere in there. Find that little, little person in there and get them to reach out and ask for help because it's out there and, you know, slowly but surely, um, there's hope out there. Well, thank you for your message. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, click the follow button and join us every month for a new episode of the Don't Change Much podcast.